0: From
1: 19. Yes! Big three-pointer for the rookie from Arizona. Big Country Reeves needs to rebound from what was a terrible season.
2: Does everyone like basketball?
0: With the second pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies will select Steve Francis from the University of This is with the second pick Steve Francis, the unimaginably niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. This is the final episode of season two, that being the 1996-97 NBA season. To put it bluntly, aside from Sharif Abdurrahim and a couple of other lone bright spots, It was an absolute and utter debacle. The Grizzlies inexplicably failed to build upon their win total from the inaugural season going 14 and 68. They had the worst record in the league, finishing last in the Midwest division, 50 games back of division winners, Utah. And they even fell far behind their expansion cousins from Toronto, who won 30 games it was a bit tough to watch as usual we covered the draft and five games those games were wins against san antonio houston and golden state and losses against new jersey and the la lakers we are here to wrap up the season with a feature interview with filmmaker and kind of the face of modern-day Vancouver Grizzlies fandom, Cat Jamie. But first, I'm joined by Mr. Sleepyhead himself, Mr. I-couldn't-make-it-to-a-7.45 a.m. tea time if my life depended on it, Justin McElroy. How you doing, Justin?
1: These are entirely hypothetical nicknames, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just throwing that out there, pulling that from the ether, not from, like, yesterday morning or anything.
1: Uh, Glad to be here, Jeremy. Uh, It is amazing (laughs) that the Vancouver Grizzlies went in their first season from the sixth worst NBA record of all time in one season to the fifth worst this was the worst two season stretch for an expansion team ever in nba history getting us off to the start that we knew that the vancouver grizzlies had as a team but when you put it in that perspective is truly putrid and now we're going to i would say we would go over the highlights and the lowlights we will sort of but boy there were a lot of lowlights this season not a lot to build on overall as we saw in the previous five games but Every team, no matter how bad, deserves their awards. And so we're going to go over some of them now.
0: Yeah, at the end of the season, you give out the hardware. So that's what we're going to do here on with the second pick. And the first award uh, is a holdover. We did this last season as well. And it is the Dave Pratt Award for Worst Take. The Dave Pratt Award for Worst Take. McElroy. what do you got?
1: Uh, I'm going to go with our favorite punching bag on this podcast, to Jackson, for his take that he could be a better coach of this team. Uh, for those that remember <laughs> season two was when Brian Winters was fired halfway through the season with a 6-35 and record, which isn't that great. Stu Jackson decides that he already the general manager and president of the team should also be a coach because that's a perfect balance of power. You don't need anyone else at the upper management doing anything. And they go from 8-35 and under Winters to 6-33 and under Jackson. They do worse. There's no real change in the quality of play that they have over that time. They look as just as lost on defense as before. They're just as one note on offense for the most part. We've covered this in past ones, just how the stats did not change at all. And it really means at the end of the day, aside from Stu's ego getting in the way, that it was another 39 games where this young team, this team where you want professional development of your younger players, just didn't really have it in a positive way. Stu had the take that he could make this team better, being closer there. It did not, and therefore he gets the Dave Pratt Award.
0: All right. So Justin's Dave Pratt Award to Stu Jackson. He's uh, racking up the hardware here on the podcast. Uh, while you have chosen to disperse the award outward, I have looked inward. I have been reflective, and mm. I've got one for you. I've got one for me, and I've got one for both of us. So I'm going to start with uh, I'm going to start with the team award. For the both of us and that is our take on will purdue it's not that we said anything wrong about will purdue but in that san antonio spurs game we did about 12 to 15 minutes on the will purdue <laughs> big country matchup and we called it like a battle of the bigs and man like i was listening back to it just going like holy cow like we really went after the will purdue experience and i believe we actually called it the will purdue experience at one point which was maybe not a bad take but pretty funny to listen back to. Um, your award for worst take goes for when uh Big Country hits the game winner against Houston. Yeah. It's it's off of a pick and pop mm-hmm. with Lee Mayberry and you call it Stockton and Malone S. <laughs> <laughs> and Which, so, you know, if you watch the replay, there is some artistry at play there for sure. So, you know, I get it. But I got to pump much.
1: up my team, Jeremy. I got yes, to retroactively yes. make them seem grander than they were.
0: Yes. And um, take going hand in hand with you in almost the exact same direction. Um, I compared big countries post moves in the San Antonio Spurs win to Akeem, the dream Elijah won. So <laughs> there you have it, picking out the NBA greats and comparing Big country, Bryant Reeves to them. Pretty bad takes, but, you know, we only have so much to work with here. On to the next award. We have the Don Poirier Award for Remembering Correctly. The Don Poirier Award for Remembering Correctly. What do you got?
1: And remember, when we're talking about this, we're going from, like, our weird, hazy, childhood nostalgia thoughts for the times that the team would come up to watching the games, seeing what it was like and going ah you know eight-year-old justin's take was correct 18-year-old Justin's take was correct and now 35-year-old Justin got to see that validated Uh, and again it was that uh, Greg Anthony was the straw that stirred the drink in the backcourt for this team you know even though in his second season he was injured a little bit more when he was in there the dynamism in terms of both being able to penetrate to the basket and also to provide some spark on defense just wasn't matched by Lee Mayberry, Lawrence Moden, Blue Edwards or anyone else in that backcourt it was a joy to rewatch those games to see that spirit still there uh understanding a little bit more looking through the newspaper clippings why he was sort of disenchanted with the team and exactly what his injuries were going on but still it was uh, something where i could watch those games and go yeah no that was one of like the two solid players <laughs> vancouver had that season
0: for me my don poirier award uh for remembering correctly goes to myself for remembering (laughs) that I love Roy Rogers. I just, I loved him when I was a kid, I've always maintained. And like you said, it's that hazy memory. And it's like, I always loved Roy Rogers. Like, was that just completely made up or was that actually based on something? And yes, he was super inconsistent. Didn't really have a jumper offensive game, nothing really to speak of, but man, the pogo stick blocks, The defense, the challenge every shot, no matter what, even if you get like three goaltends on three consecutive possessions, the guy is just so fun to watch out there for those 14 to 17 minutes a game. And uh, I loved him as a kid and I loved watching him out here again too bad we won't get to see him again in season three
1: Uh, and you know in that rookie season you look at his stats he had 1.4 win shares uh, overall he was uh, 12.6 per not the best but still for a rookie playing if for a bad team he was not one of the reasons that this team was as poor as it was and as we've discussed before just injuries gave a what if of what his development could have been
0: yes and i have honorable mentions for that award very briefly one How freaking cool Allen Iverson was from the draft episode when he's interviewed by Sager on stage. Man, the guy is just like (laughs) swag off the charts. And then how much I couldn't stand Sean Bradley. That was, uh, you know, I ranted about that in the New Jersey Nets episode. And that was uh, a, a constant from my childhood fandom through to the, you know, the ripe old age of dad that I am now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's an age. um on to the next award uh, the uh, stu jackson award for biggest disappointment this is pretty self-explanatory about what biggest disappointment is and why one would name it for stu jackson but i already handed out my stu jackson paraphernalia thus far so i have to pick an actual player and for that it's going to be ap Anthony Peeler. And the reason being is that this was a guy that was supposed to come in, be the star shooter for them, be someone that could carry the load, showed a little bit that he could do it with a good team in Los Angeles at a pretty young age as well. You would think that maybe he would be able to step up in that role and instead, You look at the stats, he did pretty much the exact opposite. Yeah, we covered that 40-point game that he had, and good for that. But overall, over the course of the season, shot less than 40% from the field, uh, was just not there providing most of the game. He had one good like he had a great release it looked like a good shot I could go oh yeah I could see why I enjoyed that as a kid but overall was unhappy here of course as we've discussed uh sunk from big moments uh, more often than not and just ultimately was not that piece of the puzzle that the team needed to happen to advance forward you could point out other players and you well might for most disappointment but in terms of the sheer amount of minutes that he got and the expectations to build on this team um I look back and just go, no, he didn't do what he was uh, asked to do.
0: Wow. That is so harsh. That is such a half glass, half empty view on Anthony Peeler. <laughs> like I look at Anthony Peeler and think of him as like a life preserver that kept the Grizzlies like even while well, I was going to, I was going to say competitive. They weren't, but man, like he had, I think at least a dozen 20 point games, he had two or three 30 point games and he had that 40 point game. Like I mean, man, if he wasn't there and it's actually funny because you've kind of led into my award uh, for the Stu Jackson Award for most disappointing uh, for biggest disappointment. Pardon me. And that is I did choose the Grizzlies guards as a group (laughs) um, because I just got so tired of watching the lack of creation. And so in some ways, as much as I was shocked by your pick, like Peeler is creating but mostly just for himself and it's mostly just jumpers, catch and shoot, or like one or two dribbles to a J. Um, Peeler missed 10 games. Greg Anthony missed 17 games. and So those are kind of like our solid guards. And that means a lot of playing time fell to Lee Mayberry, Lawrence Moten, and even Chris Robinson. And the pounding of the basketball the non-penetration, the non-creation just became so tiring to watch, so boring. And I I spent 10 minutes looking through basketball reference today. Uh, Lee Mayberry, his player efficiency rating, 168th in the, in the NBA. True shooting, not in the top 175. Win shares per 48, 164th. Offensive box plus minus Oof. 155th. Lawrence that sounds slow. Sounds pretty bad, right? Lawrence Moten. All those stats I just named, not in the top 175. And so, like, look, you know, I can't crush these guys too bad. Like, they're just journeymen who are trying to, like, make a career in the NBA. But these are guys who are playing 20 to 25 minutes a game for the Grizzlies as they absolutely flounder, as all the work falls to Sharif, as all the work falls to Big Country, who's not, you know, he's doing an okay job of it. Sharif's doing a pretty good job of it. But they just offered nothing to support the young guys who are trying to carry them from the front court. And so that's why my biggest disappointment award goes to the guard group. Did did you mention Chris Robinson there? I did. I said Chris Robinson got sometime yeah,
1: 60, um, 16.6 minutes a game in 41 games like that was significant just zeroness happening there yes. as well blue edwards also took a big step back this season in his shooting was uh, shot 280 from behind the th- arc as well uh y- you know i can't go wrong with your pick because that was just such a glaring weakness even if it was a little bit of uh, a cop out um uh, and finally the big country award for most valuable player on the season uh this is an easy one this is one i think that we'll probably be making for seasons three four five and six unless we want to be bold but hey sometimes the obvious choice is obvious for a reason it is sharif abdur rahim in his rookie season going 18.7 points a game 6.9 rebounds 2.2 assists a steal on a block eek's getting 15 field goal attempts leading the team immediately and getting 35 minutes a game he immediately got in there and within about 15 20 games or so became the alpha on the vancouver grizzlies showed that he was a step above in terms of his offensive moves showed that he could battle and at least play most of the time on defense to the draw at least being present he was someone uh, that really made that leap immediately made this team exciting for a certain uh If you were a certain age as well and uh, didn't win the rookie of the year, ultimately never progressed much farther beyond what we saw in the second half of the first season. But boy, what a spark plug! It was just such a fun experience getting to relive just that excitement of seeing a young guy that you draft, hoping that he would be a star and quickly showing that at least a star in the grizzly sense of the word already in his first season.
0: Yeah, I mean you've you've kind of uh you've definitely not stolen my thunder. You've you've said what needs to be said about Sharif. There's no question. I would love to have zagged and picked someone else and make it more interesting, but there's just no way. And uh I guess the only thing I could add about Sharif is that at the age of twenty, he came in and was the most poised player for the Grizzlies. Yes. Grizzlies. Was the most mature player for the Grizzlies, was the person who was in the right spots, even you know, like even if he wasn't the most effective defender always giving excellent effort on defense, uh, moving. Uh, He showed a lot of passion out there. And, you know, he kind of was the leader in every capacity, talent, heart, whatever you want, he had it. And uh, it was a great season to watch. I do want to throw in two more new awards. Ooh, bonus. uh, Yes, here we go. The surprise, I'm springing it on you. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I've got this one. Check this out. Uh, The Jack Armstrong Award for worst recurring play-by-play gimmick, and we've had this kind of because we usually uh, we usually check out these games with road announcers, mm-hmm. and you definitely pick up on some kind of weird stuff or odd stuff that happens uh, back in the '90s with these guys. And you know, by all accounts, they may be quite bored as they call these games with the Grizzlies on a you know Thursday night in November or whatever it may be. But I'm going to give it to all the road announcers for their Roy Rogers cowboy jokes. It happened pretty much every game. They can't help themselves. Okay, Corral, uh, cut them off at the pass. We did get one where it was Roy Rogers country music jokes, but, you know, only marginally better. But uh, there you go. Take home your hard work for that, you hackers. Um, we, we heard that over and over again. And then lastly, Wait, Jewish now, Joe do, do, do
1: I get to make my... T- oh! T-
0: yeah. yeah, if you if you have one, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but if you got one, please fire away. Let's go Jack Armstrong award.
1: Oh, I've got takes. And one thing on the Roy <laughs> Rogers thing, you know, as a Canadian, the Roy Rogers mythos obviously was not quite as big here. So that did surprise me in a sense. I get it. Obviously, home announcers, they make a joke once or twice, but they don't need to repeat it in the same way as introducing people. But I did not pick up on that bit nearly as much when i was like nine years old watching Roy rogers experience um but in terms of my pick for that i'm going to be it's year two guys and i get that big country is still Ah, a big fella from oklahoma and uh is dealing with conditioning stuff from time to time but he has now a body of work that is at the beginning of the season 80 games long by the end 160 in which he has acquitted himself pretty well as a rotational center you'd like to see a little bit more and we've gone through this as well in his game but it seems like they just not could help himself most of the time we watched even in the second season of a little bit of fat shaming a little bit of country bumpkin shaming and it just like wears at you a little bit more each and every time
0: yeah i was gonna say like the guy goes 16 and 8 for an entire season plays 75 games and yet every game he's called a hick basically yeah. Oh, from Gans, Oklahoma, the big <laughs> guy. And it's just like, yeah, guys, okay. That's yeah, that's a good take. Those are good awards. We should send those out in the mail to those guys if they're still <laughs> kicking around, if they're still alive and kicking. Wow. They're like, they're like <laughs> what is this? Who are these idiots? Mm-hmm. Um, one more, and uh, we'll call it the Shoeless Joe Jackson Award for ghosting the hosts of With a Second Pick, Steve Francis. A self-referential award that I made up 15 minutes ago, the Shoeless Joe Jackson Award for ghosting us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think both of us have a version of this, so why don't you go first?
1: No, well, Jeremy, you were the one that dealt with this. And at the risk of starting a beef with, you know, the 721st best NBA player of all time on this podcast, I think it's important for people to know when a player follows through with his commitments and when they don't. And in this case, they did not take it away.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, we, you know— we're kind of always sniffing around some of the old players to see if they want to come on with us. Like, you know, that's valuable stuff, but you know, being, uh, being the, with the second pick, Steve Francis, we're still making a name for ourselves, I suppose, or people just don't want to talk about the Grizzlies and hated their time here. And are like, why would I want to remember that? Yeah, you know, somehow a good, a good <laughs> question for ourselves as well. But I had, you know, I had a catch on the hook. I was pretty stoked. I approached Anthony Peeler over Instagram The communication was pretty spotty, uh, but I was, you know, I was relentless. That's as you know, that's what I have been. Yeah, I'm a chaser. I'm a relentless journalist. I've I've done that uh, through my career. That's how I got some of the guys from the book I wrote to come and be interviewed by me and all that. And I never quit. So, anyways, finally, I guess I broke down that Anthony Peeler wall, and he's like, "Okay, let's do it." And I'm like, "Okay, sweet, we got AP. This is going to be awesome." And In the meantime, between we booked the time, he messaged me and was like, okay, I need you to help me with my podcast. And I was like, what is happening here? Which is a thing that exists, right? (laughs) I I don't think so. I think that was the (laughs) whole point. I think he was like, oh, this dude knows podcasting. I'm going to get my podcast going here. And I'm like, okay, like that's an odd request. Like I asked you to come on my podcast, but like also – kind of a good story like i'll help anthony peeler get his podcast up and running like that's kind of fun and then of course we set the time he's in kansas city so we've got all the time zone stuff figured out i got the zoom invite out me and justin show up to the interview and just sit in a zoom interview looking at each other or a zoom meeting looking at each other for like 33 minutes we were were
1: stood up by anthony peeler what a sentence what
0: (laughs) Exactly. This is, this is the reality. This is the life we live. Vancouver Grizzlies podcast historians stood up by Anthony Peeler. So Anthony Peeler, I award you the shoeless Joe Jackson award for ghosting me and Justin. Congratulations, Anthony. So Justin, that's it. End of season two. Good work. Um, You know, we had the highs and lows and we've gone over some of them here and uh, thanks for another good season, buddy.
1: Yeah, season three can't get much worse, can it? Don't answer that question. Uh, (laughs) That does it for season two of With the Second Fix, T. Francis, that being the 1996-97 Vancouver Grizzlies campaign. But like the end of season one, we have a feature interview for people that enjoy the extra little bit of detail about our lovable Grizz. And this is with Kat Jamie. She is the writer and director of Finding Big Country and the new film, The Grizzly Truth. It premieres at the Vancouver International Film Festival. It is a film that me and Jeremy, we believe are in. That is, if our three hour interview hasn't been left on the shopping room floor. And we take you to that interview now.
2: Thank you for having me. I feel exposed, my uh, interview, how long my interview It's quite long, but I appreciate you guys taking the time to sit with me for three hours and glad to be part of this.
1: It shows how committed you are. So you framed this film about the Grizzlies moving out of Vancouver as sort of a whodunit, a kind of mystery that needs to be solved. But let's get straight to it. Who were the main suspects?
2: The main suspects? um, I mean, you don't have to ask around uh, too many people to like to figure out who the main scapegoat's. The main suspects are uh, and the Grizzlies' story. So you know it's Steve Francis, Michael Heisley, Stu Jackson. Grizzly, it's Grizzlies fans like we get the blame as well. The country is also in there. The the team itself, you know, questions about the NBA and and their sort of the rules that they put in place for the team. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of things to talk about when it comes to the Grizzlies and why the team left.
0: Okay, so you named a bunch of suspects there, all of kind of our uh, public enemies, number one through, you know, a dozen. Like, what motives did these suspects have? Like, what were the reasons for them possibly wanting to take this team away from us out of this city?
2: Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll just tell you what, like, word is on the street here in Vancouver. You know, so there's obviously Michael Heisley, an American owner who always wanted the team, never wanted the team here in Vancouver is always meant for first, uh, you know, a city in the States. Um, Stu Jackson, I don't know what the motive would be there, um, you know, but he's obviously a lot of people, you know, put blame on Stu Jackson for the, the decisions he made. Big Country, uh, you know, obviously, and I, I, I hope I sort of redeemed him and told his side of the story in front Big country, but, you know, There was just the contract that he was given um, and many people didn't feel like he lived up to that. D. Francis, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I don't know if there's an answer to your specific question, Jeremy, but I mean, obviously, like he's someone that people think you know he he didn't want to he didn't want to come but we still drafted him why did we draft him and then you know the there's the Grizz super fans also get the blame it's sort of like you know we never showed up there was no support for the team Vancouver's a hockey city we don't care about basketball and uh, yeah so i guess those are kind of like a lot of the a lot of the main suspects um that anyone even I mean each pull talk to anyone on the streets here in Vancouver and they'll they'll gladly tell you who they think their top
0: <laughs> <They're> top
2: <laughs> is. And you know, there are many.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about the Memphis connection here. You traveled to Tennessee for this documentary. And I have personally found in producing and hosting this podcast that Memphis Grizzlies fans simply don't really regard the Vancouver part of their franchise history as relevant. That is aside from of course, shamelessly stealing our jerseys, okay. um, but you know, that aside. How did basketball fans in Memphis react when you told them why you were there and what you were doing?
2: I spoke to um, some like Grizzlies, like a Grizzly historian, if you want to call him that, um, you know, we were able to talk to someone who worked at the Vancouver Grizzlies, who now still works for the Grizzlies and, and has moved to Memphis when the team relocated. And we got to meet some super fans. And I, I would say like my experience, and I, again, I, don't, I, I can't give too much away cause I, I want the film to speak for itself and for you guys to get the first taste of, you know what I discovered when you sit down in the theater and watch the film on, on the big screen. But I would say that I was um, like really surprised by how many people how many people valued the the team's roots in Vancouver, and how much they? So yeah, so I, I kind of had a, a different experience when I was in in Memphis. But I, I feel like would you guys ever go to Memphis to watch a game?
1: No, it'd be
0: weird. Be sure. too weird. Sure, I'd go.
2: <laughs> you know what? Talk to me. I like let's I I'd, I I want to see what you think after you watch the film because I you know I. Yeah, I I made a lot of friends when I was in Memphis.
1: But, but Kat, let's tell us the way that you tell the story. Because if the trailer tells us anything, uh, it seems like you've kind of centered the storytelling from your perspective as a hardcore Grizzlies fan growing up as a kid. And that worked really well in Finding Big Country. I guess, why did you want to use that storytelling convention again?
2: I think Finding Big Country was a... Okay, so I will say I'll preface this with, with, I never ever set out to make two films where I was like, you could argue like the main subject of the film. The Finding My Country, when I pitched that, it was never about me in the film and my story. But when I began pitching it and I kept getting all these no's and what I, I had in my back pocket was just like a, I'll show it to you guys here. I have it right here. It was a, it was this document. Oh wait, is that it? It was this it was a pitch deck and, you know, people would say, "Mm, not really interested. And then I would flip to this page and it's all my like childhood (laughs) drawing. And then everyone would say, oh, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Mm. That's interesting. Tell me more. And so I knew that, you know, I think finding a country, the, the one of the reasons why it kind of blew up is because you don't have to be a basketball player to enjoy finding a country because the universal theme, I feel, is that is about childhood dreams and childhood heroes, and everyone has a childhood hero. So you don't even need to know who Bryant is or the Vancouver Grizzlies is to to appreciate the journey that, you know, I kind of take you along as a super fan. When I was making Finding the Country, I always wanted to make this film, this like this longer feature film. And honestly, like I never... I was like, okay, we did this one, but in my head, I was like, we'll do like, it's, I'm not going to be in the long feature, the long film, it'll just be the players. And then when we started pitching the film, everyone was like, no, we want you in it <laughs> again. <laughs> um, and so with this new film, it's not just me, though. I'm accompanied by other super fans that you meet. Um, so it's not just my story. Obviously, you guys have like you guys are like two of the super fans that I meet or who are part of the film but there are many other uh and 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 after Finding the Country I kind of we kind of came up with this idea because so many people came up to me after screenings with like tears in their eyes saying like I thought I was the only one I didn't know that there are other people that cared about the Grizzlies as much as I did and as much as you do and so that's when I was like okay we have like we have I have something here like I've tapped into this community that's so passionate and that's that has like so much like still has so much love for this team. And so again, when we were pitching, it was like, okay, it's not just gonna be me this me this time. I'm gonna be accompanied by all these other Grizzly fans. And what I love about this story is that the Grizzlies were not the greatest team, but we still love them. And so, you know, I, I just feel like there's the story has so much heart um just off the bat because of These lovable losers and this like group of fans who lived and died, like, you know, they they didn't, they didn't matter if the Grizzlies were the worst because we didn't care. I know that you guys, you guys kind of cared, but like, but I (laughs) feel like I was a bit younger, maybe a bit younger because I didn't know we were that bad. I think that was maybe a bit of the, like the difference between like me watching it versus you guys watching it.
0: It's so funny because like you put such a beautiful heartfelt spin on it. And like, whenever I think about myself, I'm just like, I'm just an idiot. I don't know why I like this stuff, (laughs) but but yes, no, that's the nice version. I love it. I love
2: it. I'll just add, like, I feel like, and I've interviewed, you know, people within the NBA and they'll say like you know, it's so easy, like, to me, Vancouver Grizzlies fans are the epitome of what a true fan is, because regardless of win or loss, we love the team. It's so easy to love the Toronto Raptors, because they're like, they're NBA champions, and they've they they they've, they've won so much. Like, we are, in essence, what a true fan is. And that's what I love about the story of the Vancouver Grizzlies. That's why I wanted to tell, tell their story, because it's a story that has just has so much heart.
0: So back to the film, though, there, you got some of the biggest names of Vancouver Grizzlies, History in your trailer. I saw Big Country. I saw Sharif. I saw Jacked. Mike Bibby. What was their general sense? Their general feeling in looking back at that squad more than two decades later?
2: Oh, it was so much fun. Yeah, it was so great to to hang out with them. Um, you know, Bibby and like my crew and I, we went to his place in Arizona, and he like invited us into his home for like we filmed with him for like three days, and. The consensus was like with everyone I spoke to, I think it was like a lot of them thought, felt like I wish I had been more mature at that time. And I wasn't that young because I I love my time there, but I didn't realize like how lucky we were to be playing in Vancouver. That, that was like kind of the overall sentiment that I that I got. The other overall sentiment was like we were we were on our way to becoming good. Like there were years and we'll point to this in the film where things were like starting to pick up. And, you know, things that were kind of out of our control happened, you know, there's a lockout that happened that kind of put things on pause. There were, and we don't, yeah, I, I won't say what we get into and we, we can't get into in the film because it's just, there's just so much that you could cover, right? There's like, it's the film is like an hour and 40 minute like an hour and 38 or 98 minutes or something. I don't, I don't know the exact runtime, but It was, there's so much that we, that had to hit the cutting room floor. Not you guys, but there are other things that, you know, had to, didn't make the cut.
0: But so are are Bibby and Country and Reef, are they at all surprised to learn that you and me and Justin and all those crying fans and an entire documentary film crew still care about the team?
2: I think so. Like I was, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, I do think that they were, um.
1: I mean country sort of new because of the response to the doc but
2: yeah I mean baby like I have told him like when I, you know when I was in New York a few years ago I was like what's your best selling jersey and they're in the NBA store in New York City and they're like my baby jersey and I told that to him and he was like he didn't like he didn't know that and it was just like whenever I go like I was in LA and I wanted a, like this is again years ago and and their popularity has just grown since then but I was in LA I wanted to, like a Grizzly snapback. I was told go to the store because at this time Michelin Ness like they hadn't now there's so there's so much like Grizz stuff by Michelin Ness. I think this was like early days, and I go to the store. They're like, yeah, we're sold out. I was like, what is happening? Like so that that's when I kind of knew I was like there is an audience for this story that's not just based in like Vancouver in Canada, but uh, I think they they are like pleasantly surprised. And I you know I've told them like you like you guys are still so like loved here. And uh, there's so many kids who grew up watching you who are now like, you know, in their thirties or older, who long for the days when like the NBA comes back and who still like really remember you guys as like, as part of like our childhood memories. You know, they all obviously love to hear that. And it, you know, it was meaningful to them to know that their legacy still lives on here in Vancouver.
1: So, you know, we we talked about these big guys on the team that we all remember that you talked to, but we love to get mired at the minutia of Grizzlies basketball. So can you say who was the least known or maybe most forgotten Grizzly that you were able to speak for for this?
2: I mean, I would say I don't think we talked we didn't talk to anyone that was like super that was like ah. super obscure. <laughs> like, I feel like because everyone that we that, you know, got on camera had because I it had to be worth it, right? To like, fly our team there they had to have some sort of like
0: real connection just talking connection. about an actual successful filmmaker not two podunk uh, podcast hosts uh <laughs> <in their bedrooms.
2: laughs> but i did like i you know we we i tracked down i tracked down so many players i i tried to message so many of them and i got ghosted by a few of them but i would say majority of them said yes and majority of them were just yeah you know so, I great.
1: mean, we got ghosted by Anthony Peeler just last month. So, we're in good company. <laughs>
0: I was pumped to see Sean Kemp in the trailer. How much do you think Seattle's saga of losing its team to Oklahoma City played into his perspective on what happened here?
2: Oh, yeah. He was like, I mean, Sean loves Vancouver. It was so cool to hang out with Sean. We, uh, yeah, he was very generous for this time. He deeply feels for like Vancouver fans because of what happened with Seattle. Um, and, He loved Vancouver. He loved coming here to play here and he loved big country. Like he was like, he wished he had country on his team. He was like, that would have helped him. He he was like, I, if he was like, if I had country and as like a rookie and I was able to work with him, like he was like, I would have, I would have loved that. So he was speaking praises about country. Like, yeah.
1: Oh, but yeah, so let's, uh, what did Stu do now, Kat? I mean, let's talk about Stu Jackson. He's the first person mentioned in the trailer. Were you able to speak to him and how much anticipation did you have for that interview?
2: I I mean I love Stu. I I love Stu Jackson. He's he's great. Um and he he was on a he was like on on my list. And I and I think, you know, I I spoken to literally so many people who worked within the organization. And you just get like a sense of even before I talked to Stu, you know, everyone in the organization just sung his praises about how good of a, a leader he was, how good of a boss he was, how good of a person he was. Um, and so I it took a while to get in touch with him. Um, I did. We got in touch with him with Finding My Country. There's this I feel like isn't he in a clip that he's in a clip. I'm on the phone. I feel like talking to him. So I was in touch with him like I have been in touch with him these past few years kind of like I said yeah, I'm making this feature film um I actually know I there was a I was in New York a few years ago I mean and he invited me to his office and I kind of just pitched this to him and I said this is after Finding the Country and I just said you know I'd love to I want to make this other film now um and you know will you be a part of it and he was like of course um but thankfully like you can't tell the story without Steve without Stu Jackson so thankfully you know he we we have a a great interview with him and he's able to, you know, speak for himself and tell tell his side of the story. You know, I I do feel like Stu gets um, unfairly blamed for a lot of the things that happened. And so the the hope with this film is to, again, just get him to get him to tell his story and, and what happened.
1: I I mean, uh, me and Jeremy are known to have stew fueled diatribes no, at I mean, every moment. Did it like you did have to put those tough questions to him though, right?
2: Totally, yes, a hundred percent. But I think, but here's the thing: like, once you start, once you start talking to more more people, like you get like a better picture of like what actually happened, and you know, so that I I guess that were that's where I was coming from. Like I I. I mean, I feel like, okay, we did probably 40 sit down interviews and that's 40, like three (laughs) hours sit down interviews that so many more phone interviews, zoom interviews. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I've spoken to so many people within the Grizzlies organization to, to understand, like, to have a better understanding what, what happened, what the team dynamics were. And there's, I don't even think there was one person that I spoke to who, faulted Stu Jackson so I mean so, that, so that's that's what's interesting it's like all these fans we have this like perception of what happened but then when you actually talk to people who were in the organization like they have a different story so that's what that's what's interesting and I, I guess I'm like this film is hopefully like bridging the gap between these two opposing sides
0: so we're going to have to reformat in our entire podcast.
2: No, I don't, I don't know. I, I have no idea. You guys will be the litmus test. I don't know if I'll be able to, uh, we'll, we'll see. I I'm, you know, I made this film, like this film has many goals, but like, I, I was so stressed out making this film because, you know, I, I do want, it's not, this film is not just for Grizzlies fans, but it is also for Grizzlies fans, obviously. And I was like very, You know, there are many sleepless nights, literally, when I was, I'd be anxious to be like, well, they like this. Like, this is for you. Like, I made this film for, like, you guys and the, uh, like, other Grizzly fans that are out there. You know, I hope I answer questions. I hope I give people closure. I hope we uncover, like, many truths that we've been, that we've been wanting, that audiences have been wanting. Um, But yeah, of course, of course, I had to come in, like, you know, I I asked the, the hard questions that, that we all have about, okay, well, why this? Why that? Why not this? Why not that? If you ask me a question, like I can give you an, a- I, I like if one of your, your arguments against Stu, I can give you an answer, but it, it might, it might not be sufficient for you guys. I don't know. But anyways, that's just. I'll <laughs> that.
0: So Kat, the trailer is awfully dramatic. I love it. Nicely done, but probably the most dramatic moment of all is when you spot with the second pick Steve Francis I'm not sure exactly where it looks like it might be an airport or something what can you tell us about that if anything
2: Steve and I were in touch uh then he ghosted me and I but I was like you know I can't I can't tell this film without Steve and I'm not like, did I get him did I what did he he agree to an interview did he say flat out no when when he when he saw me so yeah I traveled to a place where I knew he was going to be because of my team and we're very good sleuthing and we're very good investigators, and I knew he was going to be somewhere, and so I flew there on a whim to try to convince him to be part of this project.
1: Oh, this is the, it's the Finding Steve Francis sequel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. You know, our show's tagline, the best podcast about the worst franchise in NBA history. There's not much disputing that the Grizzlies were the absolute worst. In six seasons, they won 101 games and lost 359. They left 21 years ago. They have built a whole new existence with new fans in a city 4,000 kilometers away. Why does this story still matter to people who aren't me and Jeremy?
2: I think what the film, one of the things the film shows is what, what impact a team, a sports team can have on a city, what it can do for a community, what it can do for relationships um, between friends, between families, like, you know, sports is, you can, just, you can think it's just, oh, like, shrug it off. It's like, oh, it's just the NBA. But like, really, like, you know, these teams bring a lot of, they do a lot for the city, you know, they give us an identity, they bring culture. And so, I don't know, I feel like, if you're a sports fan or if any sport, any sports fan uh, doesn't, you don't have to be an, a basketball fan or a Grizzlies fan. I think you'll enjoy this film because you'll be able to relate to what all these super fans are talking about. And I'm sure, you know, fans in, you know, LA or Boston, if their team were to leave, like, you know, what, what effect would that have on that community? And so, yeah, I do think it's a, it's a film that, well, we, we did try to make it, although yes, it's for Grizzlies fans. We also uh, made it a point to craft the story in a way that it wasn't just for Grizzlies fans.
0: And lastly, cause I know you're busy, got lots on the go. How are you doing? How does it feel to have this film so close to being out in the public?
2: It's yeah, it's surreal. Like I have been, I, I, <laughs> it's been a really, really stressful year. You guys, like with making this film during COVID was so tough It was so stressful. Um, I was I didn't do like I was very, very careful because I had two feature films going at the same time. And I couldn't knock on wood, like I couldn't afford to get sick because I was traveling. This is when um, you still had to test negative to go to the States and like these NBA players would like only it's like this is the time slot that I'm available. Right. And so I can't tell you how anxious I've been this whole year just with traveling making sure that no one in my crew or myself like got sick. Um, and then also, you know, with documentary filmmaking, it's like, we're going to these people's homes. We're entering their space. And so we can't get them sick either. So like, we had to make sure, like we only started to travel when my team and I were fully vaccinated. Like that was, you know, that was a priority of ours. The thing about this film too, it's so personal. It's such a personal film. Like Finding Me Country was personal. This is also just as personal. And it, it, like, when that happens, I become in it like a uh, perfectionist to the max. Like, it's not healthy how, how like detail oriented I get because no one cares about, no, no one's gonna see the stuff that I see, but I see it. And um, so, anyways, that's all to say. I'm very happy that, you know, I'm, it's done. The film is done. I, I've been dreaming about since I was in university, like in film school. And then like but have been working on since about 2016 like if I like you know because I count the work that I did in finding the country that counts as this because this was always the goal. Like when when we shot in Oklahoma with Bryant, in my head I was like okay what these questions won't make finding the country but these questions will make the other film that I want to make so I, I was literally always thinking about this film.
0: Well, Kat, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for becoming such a kind of passionate voice and face for this group of kind of we we'll be gone basketball fans who, you know, we still got a voice out there. We still got some life in us. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the pod and best of luck with the film. We can't wait to see it.
2: Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Justin.
1: Thanks a lot, Kat.
0: There you have it. That's Kat Jamie, the writer and director of The Grizzly Truth, premiering at the Vancouver International Film Festival. Justin, what do you think of that?
1: I mean, as always, I love Kat's pure enthusiasm for this team totally. and what it represented to her and everyone else in Vancouver of a certain age who cheered on for this team. And I think that's why partly we were drawn to doing that with her. And I think you can see that that's going to be a through-line through this that's going to imbue it with as much uh, enthusiasm and and sort of joyousness as the Finding Big Country one. Uh, I am sort of amused at how she thinks we're going to be disappointed at how Stu Jackson is going to be portrayed there but I guess he is not the answer to the question of who killed the Vancouver Grizzlies at the end of this.
0: I mean I'm walking out I'm walking out of the theater I'm gonna like throw my my pop at the screen if that's like if that's like the final utmost like nope it wasn't Stu's fault like that's going to be problematic for me as as you know (laughs) but um no i mean like you know i was super pumped for us to be a part of this project and uh going to do the interview was super fun and i just think it's really cool that someone with this passion and skill set is like pursuing this with her entire life her whole career is going to this her professional energy and you know if you've seen finding big country you know that that's a very polished and excellent skill set as far as storytelling and filmmaking and I'm really kind of excited about the way in which she's framed this because I think what she brings to this story and to this broader ecosystem of of grizzly storytelling is that attention to universality. She is able to tell these stories to draw people in without talking about um lee mayberry's offensive box plus minus from 1996 like uh, (laughs) you and me you know what i mean like she 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 tells the story so that people who never gave a shit about the grizzlies can still be like oh that was super interesting that was cool that kat tracked down this big guy from oklahoma that kat went and like tried to find steve francis or whatever it may be like i think it's it's really well done in that capacity
1: yeah, one of uh, our co-workers, uh, to, or my coworkers now, I guess, uh, who got an advanced screening of this, uh, said to me, uh, he watched the whole thing, which we have not yet, and said, I'm not a big basketball fan, but I'm sucked in, uh, and said he cried several times, what? and there were so many people interviewed on it, and it's like, the idea that this is going to be, you know, one of those definitive statements on the team that collects all these people in a where are they now thing, 24. 25 years later, and has this heart is really cool. As a journalist, you know, I'm a little, I don't know about you, but I'm a little terrified on being on the other side of the coin now where I've spent my entire career interviewing people and choosing what little bits to get. We're waiting to see if from our three hour interview, we're going to get like two or three sound bites, <laughs> yeah, which is fully fair, but we I don't know. know what they're going to be and how we're going to look in them.
0: I know. It's going to be completely out of context. It's going to be like, yeah. One errant stew-like swear word we probably threw out, and we're like, ah, whoops! I wish I wouldn't have said that. I don't know. I'm sure it'll be fine. uh Glad to be a part of it, but uh, I can't believe they said they cried. Like, wow, that's wow. Now I'm like, I'm I'm pissed off. We don't have a screener, man. I'm gonna be sitting. I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna be on no. pins and needles at the at the uh, at the movie theater.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, we'll have the surprise there, too. And, you know, honestly, I I did shed a little bit of tear-washing big country uh, and that moment of getting to meet your heroes and yeah. seeing this guy who turned into a recluse who never really talked about his time in Vancouver after, sort of by saying how much he enjoyed it, it sort of validated my experience as a fan at the time and said, okay, I wasn't wrong to hold on to that joy and uh, remembrance. So... I am excited. That was great for 40 minutes on just big country. I can't wait to see 90 minutes of it. And hopefully I won't cringe too much when I see the five seconds of the two of us.
0: And with that, this has been with the second pick Steve Francis. I'm Jeremy Allingham for Justin McElroy. We'll see you at the beginning of season three When we dive into the 1997 NBA entry draft, check that out.